we're going to be going through uh, chapter 8 of the book of Amos. Now, much like rest, the rest of the book, if you've been here the entire time, you've seen it is uh, one series of messages of judgment after another. Now, the prophet is, again, dealing with Israel's imminent judgment here in chapter 8. Within a generation itself, these people will be judged. The Assyrians are going to come in, they're going to destroy the northern kingdom, and they're going to lead any who survive into exile, and that will be few. Now, generation after generation, at least at this point in Israel's history, has just simply ignored the warnings and the pleas given to them by the mouth of the prophets, or through the mouth of the prophets, by God. God has sent one wave of judgment after the next, and all the while, they just simply ignore it and fail to repent. Now, when we come to chapter 8, again, we find this section is just simply a continuation of that same theme in many ways. Uh, But more particularly, it is a continuation of chapter 7. We saw the vision of the plumb line, if you will. And if you remember, that is the word of God. And God takes his plumb line, he measures his people against it, and in a nutshell, they just simply don't measure up. They are a crooked and perverse generation. And so the only recourse left is for all of that to come down. Uh, They must be destroyed, in other words. However, as we've noted throughout this book, it is a time of final judgment for Israel. And I mean the northern ten tribes. Uh, The time for judgment is ripe, and that's what we find here today. There is little time, in other words, for them to actually repent, because judgment is swiftly coming their way. And the most startling point or thing at this point is simply that the people he's speaking towards, they will find it's already too late. In other words, they've crossed this point of no return, and it's all because they have no intentions of genuine repentance. They just simply don't care. And we know this because throughout this entire book, they have not listened to him thus far, but even here, they are just simply ignoring the pleas and the warnings of the prophets. Even in the midst of him telling them once again that this nation, these 10 tribes that went north must come to an end, they would rather go down with the sinking ship than turn in faith and repentance to the one true God. Now, ultimately, they are a people, they imbibe that age-old tale of those who think trite thoughts about the judgment of God, but discover that it is no small thing to be trifled with. And if we think about it, this is what our culture is today, is it not? As a whole, our culture thinks nothing of the judgment to come. And for many that are essentially bombarded with that time and again, they still don't think about it because we just don't take it all that seriously. And so much of what we're going to see today is, again, that same fruit of rebellion and pride and and ignoring the the warning of the judgment to come, but we're going to see exactly how that plays out. Now, if you look with me at verse 1, we'll start to make our way through the text here. Contrary to the narrative of these people who, again, have rejected every word from the mouth of the prophet, Amos once again highlights the origin of his message. And it becomes incredibly important because he's saying, thus says the Lord. He bases the foundation of his message, as you see in verse 1, off of the fact that this is revelation given by God. He says, this is something the Lord showed me. Now, his prophecy, as we know, he has said, every turn thus far is from God. His visions, every turn thus far, he says, are from God. His instructions to the people to flee from the wrath that is to come, to turn in faith and repentance, is from God. Every vowel, syllable, and every punctuation mark present in his message to the people, again, is from the Lord. 
So over and again, this prophet has been sure to relay that the word of God is coming to the people of God from God himself. And again, as we consider this, we're far removed from Israel, but as we consider this, it becomes vitally important in our own lives, does it not? Now, by now, my hope is that all of you are here today because you love the word. You are here today because you want to hear the word and you want to know what God has said. You know at least if you've grappled with this reality in some sense, the Bible is not merely something to be checked off and read. It is not merely this series of stories that you might glean some wisdom from here and there, but it actually demands total allegiance and transformation of your life. It demands a response, in other words. And so my hope is that you would see it all as the living word of God, that it is living and active. Every single word is inspired. It's without error. It is authoritative, meaning that Again, it demands certain things on your lives just as it does my own. It not only contains the power of God unto salvation, right? But it requires we conform our lives to every jot and tittle. Ultimately, my hope is that you have recognized this word given to even Israel is still living and active today, thousands of years later. What we hear today, or what we will hear today, is an incredibly hard word. And I know that if you've been with me, pretty much everything from Amos is an incredibly hard word. But today, it just beats you up in many ways. It's a terrible word of judgment. And and to this generation, it's a firm call to them to flee the wrath of God and to repent. And yet, it is a message they just simply reject yet again. They reject it ultimately because they think trite thoughts of judgment. Now, I was recently asked by a gentleman, what was the biggest thing that I've been learning as we've been going through the Minor Prophets? And my response was essentially just that. I have learned that we don't take the judgment of God nearly as seriously as we ought to. I know that even as I've been preaching through these passages and I've been learning about them uh, to an extent that I've never done before simply because I'm faced to study them hours at a time that I still don't think of the judgment of God as I ought to. Now, we are not Israel. The church is not one and the same with Israel. We're not in the same position even in many ways because we are just in a very, very different place in time and culture, Uh, but we're also in the New Testament era of the church, and so we know the full instructions of what God has given us. And yet part and parcel to that is that Paul has told the church that these things, meaning all the things written in the Old Testament, these stories of rebellion and idolatry, were written for our instruction. And the reason that these things were written to us is simply that we often don't take them as a warning for our own behavior and mindset. We often think too highly of ourselves, do we not? Now, the broader church, in that sense at least, is not all that different from Israel. Surely we have good churches. I like to think that we are among them, right? Many of you come here, again, because you love the word and you want to hear the word. But the fact of the matter is that no generation, no church, and no people is ultimately safe from the danger of apostasy if they refuse time and again to hear and heed the words of God and turn in repentance to Christ. Thus, the idea is that no generation, no people, no church is safe from the prospect of judgment. If they're not safe from apostasy, if one generation could fall into that headlong, another can fall straight into judgment. And yet how often do we lessen the severity of judgment because we know it sounds harsh? I mean, is that table conversation for you and your friends? 
Nine out of ten times, I guarantee you, it's not, it's not going to be that way. The reality is that we know many who claim allegiance to Christ. And in fact, many do, right? We know that our culture, even in a broad sense, loves to say they follow the Jesus of the Bible. And yet the reality is that they, they do not even submit themselves to the true Christ of Scripture. They don't submit themselves to his lordship. Even if many have correct doctrine, they live a life of wanton rebellion time and time again. And it ultimately shows us that people simply will not hear the words of God nor conform their lives to the Scriptures. And so much like you've heard from the pulpit numerous times before, uh, my simple plea to you today is just to consider, again, what is it that you believe at the end of the day? I have to ask you to consider, once again, what is the foundation, as Matt Miller preached this last week, what is the foundation your life is built on? Is it a dominating reality? In other words, is the Christian worldview comprehensively built on Christ and his word for you? The reason I ask that is simple. We are either going to be sheep who hear and follow the words of Christ, or we are going to be those who are uh, seduced by the whisperings of sweet nothings that we follow after all the way until we get to hell. All of it, beloved, all of it stands or falls upon the word of God and, and what we make of it. And so Amos, again, he begins with this. He begins with, thus the Lord God showed me. And so he begins with the word of God. He's going to end with the word of God, and so shall we. Notice what he shows the prophet here. Behold, there is a basket of summer fruit. And then he explains that meaning to him. And he says to the prophet, this simply means the end of my people, Israel, has come. I will no longer spare them. Now, the point of all of this is simply to show that Israel's time of rebellion that's long overdue for judgment has finally come. It's come to its end, and this summarizes the heart and message of this book. If you want to know it in one line, it is simply that Israel's time for judgment has come. Israel's time is finally up. The time is ripe for judgment, and it marks this end of an era, this end of even an entire generation or people group, but more than this, the end of the northern kingdom. The point in that is simply that this is not a temporary judgment, once again, in which they can repent from. As a nation, as a nation, they will be judged. They cannot escape from it. They cannot recover from it. That 10 tribes that went north will forever be destroyed in terms of them being gathered as a people group together. And not only until they actually repent and turn and unify with the southern kingdom, once again, will they be a people. The nation ultimately is measured against this plumb line of the word, just as it signified that that could no longer stand. They are shown to be a basket ripe for the picking, meaning that the time is finally at hand for all to be revealed and the foundation of what they believe to be revealed. God will spare them no more. And all that means is he will simply no longer overlook their rebellion. There is no forgiving them. There is no more compassion upon them. Judgment has come. The wheat shall be separated from the tares, so to speak. And in case that isn't quite clear enough, from this vision, we see in verse 3, he continues. <clears throat> Look down with me and notice what he says. The songs of the palace will be turned to wailing in that day, meaning the day of their judgment, declares the Lord God. Many will be corpses. In every place, they will cast them forth in silence. And so on the day of judgment for Israel, they are going to have ultimately two responses, are they not? 
The first is that their songs are going to be turned into wailing. Before the clamor of their joyful music reached the heavens and it stunk to high heaven because it was filled with idolatrous and rebellious acts, they were hypocritical people, and yet he says, now you will howl like jackals in the night, if you will, and it's simply because of all the judgment unfolding before you. And then he says, corpses are going to be strewn about the land. The amount of dead bodies are going to be piled so high that the Israelites can't even take the time to properly bury them. And just imagine that sight. Imagine telling your six-year-old child, this is because of the judgment of God. Imagine the stench of that. And what we see then is that much like one tosses out over-ripened fruit from the fridge, the Israelites will do that to their own countrymen to just simply get them out of sight. They will have to cast out their loved ones, meaning this is not just random people. You have no idea who they are. These are friends. These are family members. These are children. These are everybody that they've known for their entire life. And so the reality of judgment, finally at that point, is going to be incredibly palpable at that time. That's really what all this serves to show us. The finality of judgment is at hand. They had so long ignored it. They had so long thought trite thoughts of the judgment of God. They so long had pushed it back as if that day would never come. And yet when it finally comes, it can no longer be ignored because the sight of it is horrendous. Ultimately, they did not take the repeated warnings. And I mean, this is over and over and over again at this point. They did not take them seriously. And on the fateful day, those warnings are realized in full they will have no recourse but to wail. And yet that wailing will give way to silence. Now you know, at least some of you know, when you get to that point and you're just, the agony of your bones is heavy and you cry so much that you cannot shed any more tears because your eye ducts are just dry. Or when you're so incredibly sick that you, you dry heave, nothing else is coming out. That's essentially what the picture is here. They, they're crying, and they can no longer cry out because they have cried so much that they no longer even have a voice to do so. They see the countless dead bodies all around them, and all the while they know that while we did not take this seriously, no longer is that the case. We cannot even ignore it. We cannot even cry out. Even in death, the wicked have no peace. The bodies are left to the vultures, the scavengers, Again, dread will consume the living. The implications, as we look and apply this to our modern context, is incredibly startling. Again, we're not Israel, right? We're not a theocratic nation. The United States is not that. But we have to ask the point, when does the tipping point occur? When is there a point of no return? When does a person or a church or a parachurch or a nation Reach that point when it is finally enough, it is over and done, there is nothing left but judgment. The frightening thing is that this is something that we are not granted to know. We're just not. We know that the Lord has not revealed it to us ultimately. He has told us that there is a point when this comes. There is a point when judgment will be poured out, but we don't know when. We also don't know when somebody is dangerously on the verge of apostasy, do we? We can't measure the inward state of a man. We, we can see that there might not be meaningful repentance, but they profess Christ. They stumble backward and forward multiple times. They might take two steps forward and three backward for their, their entire lives. And we have to take them at the credibility of their profession. 
We don't know what sins everybody hides from everybody else. We can't always distinguish between the unbeliever and the believer because by all measurable criteria, they give that appearance, do they not? What we're left to do over and over again is to simply say that there are warnings in Scripture given to the people of God, and they they are legitimate warnings. There is a judgment that is to come, and it will reveal the hearts of all people. In other words, we might not know when the time is ripe for judgment, but we do know that there is a time that is ripe for judgment, and we must warn people. (laughs) Again, I can't tell you exactly when it has passed that point. I can tell you that there is that time. In fact, it does exist and that we must, therefore, test ourselves to ensure we are of the faith. The scriptures are replete with these kinds of warnings. They are replete with these kinds of examples over and over again. They are not directed at unbelievers, beloved. They are directed at those who profess Christ. Every one of them, every one of those warnings that says to test yourselves, to examine yourselves, to keep fruit or bear fruit keeping with repentance. These are all directed towards those who profess Christ. We must ask ourselves, what is our hope? What do we love? What are the things that occupy my heart and mind? We must examine constantly. And we must always do so with Christ in sight We must not lose sight of the fact that he has died in our place to accomplish our redemption, that without him we have no hope of securing that redemption, but we must still examine the foundations of our faith, always. Now we catch a glimpse of what occupies the hearts and the minds of the Israelites, starting in verse 4. Now notice once more, this prophet, Amos, cries out, he warns them of this judgment to come, And yet he calls attention to what it is they truly love in verse 4. They are people who trample the needy and seek to do away with the humble of the land. In other words, they are people who love to oppress the poor and needy among them. Their own countrymen, they love to do it. In fact, they oppress them so severely that what's said in the Hebrew here is they're actually seeking to exterminate them. They just want them out of the land. They want to get rid of them for good. What it reveals is they have this profound love of something, right? But it is certainly not their neighbor or their brother. They have a profound love for themselves. The law, the law calls all of the Israelites to care for these people, especially their fellow Israelites. They are to uh, basically set them up on a path to restoration so that as the people of God, they can all enjoy these things that God has given them together. And if you think about it, in one sense, this is the most basic element of the Christian faith that we know of, is it not? And James tells us that true religion is caring for who? Widows and orphans, yes. He likewise says that if we tell a brother who says he is in need that you would simply go on your way, that I will pray for you in other words, or wish you well, yet we do not meet their physical needs, we are worse than an unbeliever. We have a ultimately dead faith. The Apostle John also expresses this, but he does it in a more stark manner. He asks, how can anyone who has earthly possessions yet withholds compassion from his brother, how can he say he even has the love of God within him? Christ spent an uncomfortable amount of time talking about this same exact thing. 
He tied it again to our salvation. Perhaps one of the most famous examples of this, and we don't need to go here, I'm just going to summarize it for you, is Matthew 25. He reveals two types of people. He reveals the sheep and the goats. You have those who are, they're not even aware of the fact that they are directly serving Christ out of their generosity. They're just simply pouring out and, and caring for their, for their brothers and sisters in need. And then you have the goats who time and again are caring for their own needs. In other words, they're denying the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And to that first group, he calls the sheep. He says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you have done for me. And then he says to those who have denied these people, to the second group, Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And then he says to the sheep, you shall go to eternal life, and to the goats, you shall go to eternal punishment. And the point of this is to simply say that this is not some mysterious new teaching that the early church came up with or that certain Christians believe or that even Christ invented in contradiction to the Old Testament, but rather, this has been evidence of genuine saving faith since the beginning. This has been evidence of the love of God from the beginning. We love God's people. Amos is essentially saying that even at the most basic level that the Israelites have failed. Even at the most basic level of summarizing the entire law, right? The two great commandments, that is, you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul. You love your neighbor as yourself. They failed. And then he continues in verses 5 through 6, and he illustrates exactly how they failed. And this is really where you see your, their hearts on full display, if you will. Continue to look down with me. Notice what he says of them. This is secret thoughts of their own mind, right? They're not openly saying it to everybody else. He depicts them as a people who say in their hearts, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain And when will the Sabbath be over? Essentially, that's what he's saying there. That we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales. And why? So as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. Now, the new moon festivals and the Sabbath, these are days of worship that were set aside and consecrated, that is set apart specifically for worship of God. It was to be done as a community. These people would gather together. They would give thanks to their creator simply because he had saved them out of Egypt. It was all a corporate reality. And these guys who would go to the markets or they're daydreaming, if you will, they certainly come together with everybody else. They observe this day ritualistically. And yet you can see from the text, they are eager to get back to work. But it is much, much more than simply going back to work. They're not just mere workaholics, if you will. Their preoccupation includes much of their heart attitude toward God and their brother. Now, it's important to know, again, that the law of Moses condemned everything that they just saw in their hearts. It condemns all of these practices and says that no one who participates in those can have part in the kingdom, if you will. And so it's not a matter of these guys just simply being shrewd businessmen. In other words, there was no divorce between how they lived their life together as a community of God and how they conducted their business. They could not lie, cheat, and steal outside of corporate worship. And so ultimately what he's saying is that this is just pure rebellion. It's pure idolatry. Now, first we see they're preoccupied with the question of how long, 
right? They sit in the service and they ask, when is this going to be done? When can I just check out and get the heck out of here? And rather than seeing how all of it goes towards the right worship of God and therefore a right practice, they're waiting for that time they can get out and get back to the market. In other words, they're waiting for the time they can get out of worship to go back to what it is they truly love, to what it is that truly occupies their hearts and minds. Now, secondly, we see that their primary motivation is born out of this desire to enrich themselves. And again, it goes beyond that, though. It's through specifically dishonest gain, or as the scriptures would say, sordid gain. Now, they did this in a few different ways that we see here. Now, one of which would be that they use these smaller containers that you would pack all of the grain into or all of the wheat into a bushel, and yet it was less than the standard weight of a bushel. And so rather than charging the full price for a full bushel, they charge the full price for maybe three-quarters of a bushel. So they come out on top. They get to not only sell more grain later, but they get more money for the same or actually lower amount of grain. We also see from the text here, they enlarged the shekel. Now, the shekel is a standard weight of measurement. And so all that means is when you put a shekel down, you then plunk your silver down to see how much you've got to pay. And on the scales, they balance out. By enlarging the shekel, you get more silver, right? Pretty shrewd, incredibly wicked. To top it all off, they used dishonest scales. So not only did they enlarge the shekel, archaeological records actually show that in the first capital city of Israel, they had two different sets of scales. They had one for buying and then one for selling. So no matter what you wanted to do, you could get away with it and you could get either more grain out of your sale whether you know, you're buying more, you're cheating them out of money, or you're cheating somebody else out of money because then you could give them less. Whatever the occasion, they had what you needed. And then in verse 6, it actually shows their purpose behind doing all of this. Again, it's not merely because they wanted to get more money. That would be an easy thing to deal with in some sense, right? They did it all to crush the poor into the dirt so they could eventually take them and put them into the slave trading business. The people that were desperate for food would not only be cheated out of the food they should get, they would not only be cheated out of the amount of money they had to pay to get that food, they would be treated as commerce themselves. Now, the final line in verse 6 reveals just how wicked these men were as far as the merchants. They sold these same people the refuse of the wheat, meaning that they sold them garbage food. It wasn't fit for consumption. It was fit for the garbage heap, and yet they still sold it to them nonetheless. And they cheated them out of their money and the full weight of the bushel while they did it. But they did it all so they could just simply drive them into further and further and further desperation. The goal was, if you could put them down into the dirt, you could then take them as your slave, make them work until you got tired of them, and then sell them off to somebody else all of it in violation of the law that God had revealed. Now, they matched external conformity to the feast days, to the Sabbaths, right? They were dutiful worshipers, and yet their hearts were far from God. They took a break from their commerce on a Sunday, or technically a Saturday in Jewish culture, or for the new moon festival, and yet all the while they were scheming how they might take advantage of somebody else. And so you go from a person who, for all intents and purposes, looks like the guy you want to be, 
in public worship, and those guys are daydreaming about how they can not only rob people, but how they could rob them to the point of putting them into slavery. In other words, they just simply saw everything as a commodity to be traded. They saw their brothers and sisters as a means to an end rather than the end itself, which was to glorify God, their creator. Ultimately, the end for them was money. They acted as if they had a deep love of God and their brothers, and yet they had neither. They loved themselves. They loved wealth. Now, it's just incredibly wicked. And they knew all the while that God's judgment fell upon them for this, at least on the basis of what the word said. But they had trite thoughts of God's judgment. Time and again, the Lord would send word through the mouth of the prophet to remind them of this judgment to come, that they could not do such things and escape the wrath of God. And yet, they carried on as if that day would never come. And if you think about it, in in our modern context, much of the same happens, even within the broader church. People have all the appearance of joy and worship as they meet on a Sunday morning. They might be able to pull the wool over everybody else's eyes. They honor the Lord with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They think trite thoughts of judgment. They think, I could never be the one under judgment. They don't come for worship and service to the body. They come as consumers, and they view the people as a product. They view the church as a product. Now think of how much this informs much of modern evangelicalism. And it just leads me to ask, at the end of all of it, I could spend time beating up that dead horse, right? But the question I really want to ask is, what, what occupies your hearts and minds as we gather What occupies your hearts and minds as you go about the rest of the week? The sobering reality is that many of us can come to church on a Sunday. We can give perfunctory lip service to God himself, but God ultimately sees the heart. God sees the heart, beloved. He knows our internal state better than even we do. He knows when we manage to fool everybody else. He knows when you and I sit together and we sing songs and we sit under the preaching of the word what it is we truly think. He knows whether or not we believe the words we sing. He knows whether or not we actually trust in the completed work of Christ and Christ alone as we take the bread and the wine. He knows whether or not we agree with the scriptures when we say amen at the end of the scripture reading and prayer. He knows if we come to church on Sundays to hear the word preached and to change our lives, that it's a order everything under submission to the word of God or if we are there to merely sit and listen and consume. Beloved, this is a hard word. This is a hard word. This is a word that hits me square in the eyes as I even sit to study this. But no, it goes even well beyond church. The equally sobering reality is that many of us conduct our private lives separately as we conduct our public lives at worship, Right? We can, at least. We can easily fall into that trap. God knows, though, whether you lie, cheat, or steal, or do anything else, whether you manipulate or use any other unethical means to get what it is you love or what it is you want. God knows what we love. God knows what drives us. God knows what our treasure truly is, and he knows how we see the brethren. God ultimately knows, beloved, whether or not you and I take the judgment of God seriously. 
little bit of a segue here. I had to laugh about this. Becca and I were having a goofy conversation the other day. She asked in the middle of just a pillow talk, this is the important stuff we talk about, by the way. She asks, if you had the ability to teleport or read people's minds, what would you choose? Right? We're, we are solving the world's problems one day at a time. She, <laughs> she asks, and I just immediately think to myself, I'm like, there is no way I would want to know everybody's thoughts all the time. Think about that. You would know not only what they are thinking all the time, and sometimes in, in my own mind, it's just a random assortment of thoughts until they come together in some coherent way. But think of the times when you just have an incredibly wicked thought that comes out of nowhere. And you're like, oh, oh, Lord, forgive me. Well, God knows whether or not we even mean that. I would argue, though, that the people closest to us also know this reality. Not to the same extent, obviously, but they know what it is we love. They know what it is we cherish and what it is we actually believe. If you were to go to to my children or I were to go to yours and you were to ask my children the question, what is it that mom and dad love? What would they tell you? What would their answer be? If one of you went to another's coworker or boss and asked them specifically, Do you believe them when they say they are a Christian? Or have they even told you? What would the answer be? If they were asked, what is it that you love? What would the answer be? Now, D.L. Moody, (coughs) excuse me, D.L. Moody said it this way about husbands. He said, if I wanted to find out whether a man was a genuine Christian, I would not go to his minister. I would go and ask his wife. Now, I would argue that your pastor also has an answer to that question, but the point is much the same. Is there a different person behind the public persona? Do we honor God with our lips, and yet our hearts remain far from him? And ultimately, do we believe behind all of that that a life of unchecked sin and hypocrisy and rebellion only incurs judgment? My point in this is not to beat you over the head. We all sin. We all fail. That's, that's not the idea here. It's not the idea that you're seeking repentance, but that you just don't ever seek it. And ultimately, the point is that if sin is left unchecked or unrepented of, that you just continue to push it down the line, you kick the can down the road, it never ends well. Beloved, it only ends in apostasy. It only ends in judgment. The Christian life is not one of complete ease. It is not one of comfort. It is one of constant self-evaluation. And every single time, again, we must come before the foot of the cross. We must fall upon God's mercy. We must recognize that he and he alone can save us and sustain us until the end. And yet we have to be able to see ourselves as one who needs mercy each and every day to begin with. We must examine our foundation. We must take seriously the warnings of Scripture We must ask ourselves, do I love Christ? Is he my treasure? The Israelites did not ever ask themselves if God was truly their treasure. We know this because they had treasures abundantly elsewhere. They ignored the warnings to repent. They ultimately had trite thoughts about the judgment of God. As a result, the time was actually ripe for judgment. We see this now repeated for a third time, verses 7 through 10. 
And this is where the Lord brings attention to the severity of his judgments. Now, there's a substantial amount of debate on what verse 7 means when God says he swears by the pride of Jacob, but ultimately, I believe the most faithful way to understand it is that he's simply swearing an oath by his own name. He is the pride of Jacob, in other words. And so he's saying that by my own nature, by my own name, I will promise to judge the sins of Israel. So what you saw in verses 4 through 6, he says, by my own nature, my unchanging, unfailing, oath-keeping nature, my covenant faithfulness, I will judge. And what is that oath? We'll look down at the text. What does it say here? He will never forget the sins of Israel. He will never forget them. Beloved, that is a terrifying word of judgment against them. Now, we know the passage that speak to God and remembering our sins no more because we love those verses, do we not? Those are the things that make us feel good when we're feeling like a pile of crud every day or we're just going through one of those moods yet again. We, we leap towards those because they sustain us in some ways. But here it's the opposite. I will always remember your sins, O Israel. Not one sin will be overlooked. Not one will be set aside. God will bring to remembrance every single sin they have ever committed, thought, or done, and it will only provoke him to further wrath. Now here I believe the text implies not just an immediate wrath upon them, but a far-off judgment, meaning that at the end of all days, he's going to judge them. So he's not simply saying that the Assyrians are going to come and that's how I'm going to judge you here and now. He is saying there is a final judgment that you will face as well at the end of this age. Now, much of this is simply due to the language that's present throughout the text here. It has this very apocalyptic feel to it. But we also have to keep in mind that just earlier in the book of Amos, he, he tells them, you are anticipating the day of the Lord and that this day is going to be a beautiful, joyful day for you. It will go favorably for you. And yet the opposite is true of you. It will be a day of dread for you. And so that's much in line of what's being said here. He's speaking towards this eternal judgment that awaits this particular wicked generation. Now, obviously, Israel is still Israel. They are still God's chosen nation, right? He tells them in verse 2, I'm going to judge my people. And he means his people as a whole. But the reality at hand is that there there must be this purging that takes place to remove that wicked generation from their midst. In other words, the ones who are going to go to exile, the ones who are going to actually repent, he will spare from his judgment. But everybody else will be consumed because they do not love the Lord. And we see this now in verses 8 through 9. And we see ultimately they're going to be going towards that last great day of judgment. Now notice what he says in verse 8. Look down with me. The Lord says, because of this, meaning I have taken an oath by my own name, (coughs) will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile, and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. Now, if you read your Old Testament, if you read it faithfully at least, you are aware of the fact that every time God speaks to a covenant-keeping Israel, meaning an, an Israel that is obeying the Lord, that this day of the Lord that's far off has tranquility, it has peace, it has everlasting joy, and everything that we think of that's good attached to it, because they're going to not only have 
the rule of their creator over all things, and sin and Satan and death will be subdued, but ultimately he will rule in their midst. And this is obviously the same for the church at that age. It's a time of freedom from sin and the effects of sin. It's a time where the rightful ruler dwells in the midst of them, and it's a time where the people of the earth even flock to him for guidance and advice and actually take it. In other words, it's not like the earth we know today where people are rejecting God left and right. And yet seldom do we keep in mind that all that peace, all that blessing, all that pure joy attached to those great, incredible gifts of God is only after judgment comes. The king rules with an iron scepter. And yet that is not simply just a symbol of power and authority, but of judgment. The day of the Lord, then, is not simply the return of Christ in which there's this everlasting era of righteousness and peace that undoubtedly is part of it, but there is a time right before that where Christ subdues every enemy underfoot, right? It's it's described in horrific terms. Creation bursts under the seams of his presence. Peals of lightning flash about him. Thunder cracks in the sky. Christ returns on the Mount of Olives. And what happens? But the Mount of Olives splits in two. It's incredible. And now much of the same language is present here in a sense. The land quakes and he says all, so not just some of the Israelites or just the Israelites, but all who dwell in the land will mourn. And he further describes the land moving as the Nile does. And what he's alluding to here is that the solid ground you know so well that keeps your feet planted is going to be shifting chaotically like the Nile does when it floods. There's going to be great chaos on that day. And he says it will come about on that day, continuing in verse 9, that I'll make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. And so it's not just merely an eclipse. It's actual darkness. They cannot see. Continuing in verse 10, then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head, and I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son, and the end of it will be a bitter day. So in the midst of everything, even with the Assyrians, mind you, because that's not divorced from this either for them, There is this profound fear and anxiety as creation itself rebels against the laws of physics that they know so well. Everything will be ripped out from underneath them. As one commentator put it, the entire cosmos will be seemingly in opposition to the people who had turned away from the Lord as their creator and the Lord of all creation. Furthermore, it's a time of perpetual darkness. What he means is that the light of the new day would never come. There's not going to be hope for them. All hope is extinguished and only replaced by despair. And yet, in addition to this, a complete reversal of their fortunes would come. So they will not only experience the Assyrians coming in and ransacking everything, right? Their immediate temporal situation is going to be turned to mourning and gloom. But all the while, they are still in a place right now waiting for that final day of judgment and fooling themselves into thinking that somehow that last day will be better for them. That somehow throughout the midst of it, God has thought, these are my people, Israel. And yet he tells them, ultimately, your joy and celebration will be turned to misery. Your exquisite garb, your religious garb is replaced by sackcloth and you will shave your heads as a sign of mourning. Your misery will be like one who has lost their only son, It knows that the family line is cut off forever. And he says, in the end of it, will be like a bitter day. 
And what he means here simply is that the grief that you feel at the very end of it, still knowing that your son will never come back, still knowing that you will never, ever perpetuate the family line, that last day will be the same as the first. You will pretend or think that you may meet him in the air with joy. You'll meet him with pomp and circumstance. You are looking towards that day of the Lord when he returns with favorable outcome, and yet on that day, instant dread will overcome them. And the last day will be as bitter as the first. They ignored this, though. They rejected it. The danger of Israel ignoring God and his pleas for repentance time and again this is not simply going to be a time of temporary judgment for them, but eternal judgment. They would never be able to rebuild, but ultimately they're going to be judged as an enemy of God on that last great day where they stand alongside everyone else who was never a child of God. And that's the real threat behind everything here. They are not going to somehow escape the judgment to come because they face judgment now. God has promised, he he says, I'm going to remember, remember your sins forever. Beloved, the place that happens is hell. Where the worm never dies, where the anguish never departs, where your sins are always your sins. They thought trite thoughts about the judgment of God as if it were a thing to be trifled with, and they will discover both in the immediate future and the last day that it is nothing to be trifled with. They will only ever meet him in burning anger. They'll meet him in that form in the Assyrians, but also face-to-face under the everlasting gaze of a wrathful God. Now we turn to the final four verses of chapter 8. Again, we see the final mark of their judgment here, verses 11 through 14. And believe it or not, this is actually even worse. Now the most severe form of judgment to fall upon them is going to be this deafening silence from God himself. We see that starting in verse 11. Notice what he says. He says, I'm going to send a famine, but this time it is not a famine of bread and water or food and water. They've already had these judgments. They've already been sent into a a legitimate famine where they had no food, they had no water, and yet all the while they failed to repent. Again, they thought trite thoughts about the judgment of God even in the midst of suffering under it. But he says, this famine shall be utterly different. It shall be a famine for hearing the words of God. God shall not speak to them through the mouth of the prophets in the midst of all the carnage, and this will be a time where they are desperately seeking it, finally. But the reason for all of that is quite simple. When they had the word of God, they rejected it. They persecuted and killed the prophets. They sought to silence the word, all because they did not love God. And God then says, I will give you exactly what you want. Silence. They will stagger from sea to sea. We see this, verses 11 through 12, just shows the utter futility of their search. They will stagger from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. And what he means by that is simply they're going to go throughout all of the land to try and find some word from the Lord. 
They will search for an answer to their prayers. They will search for some encouragement. They will search for something, some way to repent. They will search for some way to even beg God and have an audience to repent. And yet they will hear silence. It's a deafening indictment against this crooked and perverse generation of Israelites. This generation, he has essentially said to them, though you may be of your father Abraham, you are not my people. This generation would be like those who died in the wilderness. They would not enter into the promised land. They would not enter into his rest. They would be forever cut off from the promises of God. Once again, they did not take judgment seriously. They did not take the word seriously. They thought trite thoughts of it until God says you will have none of it. They always had trite thoughts on the judgment of God. They never considered that it could fall on them. They presumed they were good, always. They always presumed they were good. They said, because we are Israelites, we must be right with God. But notice, it doesn't just simply rest on these people. It goes to their sons and daughters as well. It says their sons and daughters will faint from a thirst for the word. Now, the young are always seen as the strongest of the group, right? When you and I go to move, we don't call up great-grandpa and ask him to pick up a bunch of boxes because we know he's not going to be any good to help us. We Instead, we want to get the young guys, the guys that have all the youth and vigor and, and strength, They'll go through all the heat and not fall. Well, he says, even your young men will fail. At the end, he's saying that everybody's going under because of a lack of spiritual sustenance, for a lack of spiritual nourishment. In other words, they would realize in full all too late that truly man does not live on bread alone, but from every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Father. In all of it, the idea is that there is this insatiable desire they have to actually be filled and fed. At this time, they actually desire these things, and yet they will never have that. They had access to the word in plenty at one point, and now it's impossible to find. And that doesn't mean, it, by the way, that it's disappeared from their midst, but God has cut them off. We see this, though, in the final verse again that the idolater will also be cut off from God. They will find no refuge in their false gods. Notice what he says in verse 14. The prophet writes, As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. And so Israel's problem, beloved, is not simply moral. It is profoundly theological, meaning what they thought of God informed every bit of what they practiced and what they believed, right? That's just basic in a nutshell. That's what you believe will inform everything. But notice they worshiped false gods. They swore oaths to these false gods. When he says, by your name or as your God lives, O Dan, He's swearing an oath there under the name of that false god. These guys are powerless to do anything. We know that. But they're especially powerless to save them on that day when God, the true God of all creation, will come with burning zeal to destroy. They had forsaken their God, their true God, the God who rescued them from Egypt for false gods, for dumb, mute idols. And so he says, I will forsake you 
to your false gods. They'd forsaken the truth for the lie. They'd forsaken the light for the darkness. They'd forsaken everything that they were supposed to uphold and love and know for only that which would destroy them. Again, they did not heed God's words of judgments, especially the judgment he made so clear to them in Deuteronomy. They thought trite thoughts of it, and it ultimately reveals they thought trite thoughts of God. What we're seeing is simply the reality of all of these covenant curses that they knew from generation to generation play out before us. It just reveals unbelief, beloved. Like their fathers before them who rejected the God and his word, this profane generation would do the same, and they would find themselves in a place they never ultimately believed was even real to begin with. They never took the warning seriously. They never looked at God's wrath as if it would actually come for them. They never looked at the fact that God was a vengeful and a jealous God, and they never believed that he would actually make good on those promises. What's startling here is that these people, they bore every external mark of one who was a child of God, right? They sat among all the services of Israel, and in their hearts they said those things. In their hearts they conspired against their brothers. In their hearts they hated the Lord. Ultimately, they did not believe him, and therefore they did not obey, and therefore they would be judged. Like a child who keeps enduring the spankings because they simply must have what they want right in front of them, even though mom and dad have said it is off limits, the Israelites went right back to their sin over and again, and it's all because they loved it more than they loved their creator. They thought God would never disown them simply because God is always faithful to Israel, but they never actually stopped to consider, am I an Israelite, a true Israelite? Am I one who God has actually covenanted with, or am I one who was born of Abraham who hates this same God? Now, we see much of the same within the broader church again today. It has various institutions, parachurch organizations, whole churches, congregations, filled with people who don religious garb, they speak in religious ways, they attend various festivals and feast days. I mean, just look around Kenosha right now, and you can go and stumble upon a feast from a Catholic church in an instant, right? And yet ask yourselves, how many of the people there, even from that church, can give you the gospel? Many people, even within Protestant church, can bear every external mark of one who is a genuine child of God. They can look like a child of God, but they are not necessarily part of that body of Christ. Much like this generation of Israel, their lips may praise him, and yet their hearts may be far from him. Many presume they are in God's good graces, and yet they think all the while trite thoughts of judgment. They always love to draw encouragement and comfort from the nice parts of Scripture because, for one, who doesn't? But for two, that's what they have to go to. They have to ignore everything else because that will actually pierce them. Beloved, it is incredibly easy to claim Christ, but it is an incredibly difficult thing to follow Christ. And so the question we must ask over and again, day after day, is, Am I claiming Christ, but am I still making the Mecca or the pilgrimage to the high places in my hearts where I go and worship the things that I truly love? Do we love the word? Do we 
love it? Or do we merely profess a love of the word and walk away unchanged week to week, ever hearing but never obeying? Are we ever hungry but never satisfied and filled in the riches of Christ? Are we ever pursuing something that we know cannot fulfill? Are we putting God upon one of the many idols on the shelf that we think we can take down at any moment? Do we take God at his word when he says the idolater and the evildoer will be judged? Or do we think trite thoughts about the judgment of God? Now, if you are here today and you don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ, meaning you just simply don't believe it, or in other words, you've heard about it, but you don't believe it, you don't really buy into all that stuff about sin and judgment and hell, my simple point to you is that you think trite thoughts of the judgment of God. If you don't see your need for forgiveness for Christ or you think that you can continue to push it off, you think trite thoughts of the judgment of God. You, if you understood it, would repent. You would run to the arms of the Lord because you know that he is the only safe place to hide from his wrath. Now you've seen today there is a time where it is too late for repentance. When judgment comes, there will be no second chances. God will not forget even one of your sins. In judgment, he will not hear your cries, he will not bring you relief, and the idols that you've trusted in your entire lives will not save you on that day. The promise is also that the end of that, meaning that final judgment, will be as bitter as the first day you entered into it. It will only ever go worse through eternity. And this life, meaning literally your life right now, will be the best you ever have it. But if you turn and follow Christ, God promises the exact opposite. He promises the exact opposite. He will remember your sins no more. You will be led to life. You will enjoy his presence and his peace and his comfort and joy for all eternity. There will be no wrath upon you. I know for a fact that most of you here today believe that. You love that truth. You love the Lord you know that he is your savior, you know that he is your Lord, and you, you press into that because you treasure Christ, you treasure scripture, you treasure his people, and you genuinely seek to follow and obey him. I know many of you can't wait for that day when sin is gone. That not only will the effects of sin be removed, but your own sin will be taken away. And yet we must recognize that none of that joy, none of that freedom, none of that everlasting righteousness and peace will be ours until judgment comes first. Judgment must come first. This world and everything in it must be brought to complete destruction. The entire cosmos will be thrown in disorder as the Lord returns. The stars will fall from the sky. The sun will be turned to darkness the moon to blood, massive quantities of bodies will be thrown out and just everywhere. There's a day when he just says enough is enough and that will come. But we do almost everything we can to avoid even thinking about that reality. Even though we're in Christ, we know it's coming. And the reason I believe is simply because we also can be guilty of thinking trite thoughts of the judgment of God. Beloved, Do you look out and see souls? Do you look out and see souls rather than a gas station attendant or a grocery store worker or your child or your wife? 
The constant problem you and I have is this world is fading and fading quickly, and we forget that. They do everything they can to avoid thinking about the wrath of God. They do everything they think then they can to avoid repentance and faith in Christ, and yet that day is ever hastening towards us. How does your life reflect that reality, beloved? Does it even reflect it? Do you look at your sweet child as they are in your arms and think, that as you know, God will pour out wrath upon the evildoer, that that child who is not in Christ is that evildoer. Do you look at your neighbor, the one you know is not in Christ, and, and know that as you see him cutting the grass, that he is hanging over the slenderest of threads above the pit of hell? Do you see your coworkers like that, your mail lady, the guy that you pump the gas from, your friends, your unbelieving spouse if you happen to have one? Do you know, do you see that soul is on the verge or precipice of hell? Beloved, that day is coming. The field is ripe for the harvest and the laborers are few. And yet, you know that at the same time, the angel of the Lord stands with a sickle extended above the earth, ready to separate the wheats and the tares because the time is ripe for judgment. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that you have saved us by the grace of Christ and Christ alone. We do thank you that you have given us this gospel that our feet might be shod with it. But I pray ultimately that we would walk in that reality. We would never lose sight of the fact that this world is perishing. It is not our home. We are sojourners and strangers in the midst of it. We've been called to the great task of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. You've promised to bless us in that work. Remind us, Father, that you are ever faithful in the midst of this because you desire people to come to repentance and faith. Remind us that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner is saved. Remind us that someone came to us. Oh, Father, place this burden on our hearts that we would not be a people who are ever looking inward, but that we are always looking to the world that is perishing, that we are always looking towards running a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I pray ultimately that we would be faithful to this end. We would be bright beacons, not only proclaiming the excellencies and richness of the gospel of Christ, but that our lives would reflect this, that we would be a people who have much love for one another, We have much love for you, that we would only ever continue in that reality and that you would safeguard us from ourselves. Pray that we would shed the sin and the things that so easily entangle us and fix our eyes upon Christ. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.